Welcome to the Faith Community Church Podcast, a ministry of Faith Community Church in South Boston, Virginia. This week, we have a special guest with us to encourage you to deepen your faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you very much. It is a blessing to be with all of you once again. You may recall uh, last time I was here, I had mentioned that my wife, Nancy, who's with me uh, this time around, that she is finishing up a year of teaching in New Hampshire. So she's fortunately, my my son works for American Airlines, so she's able to fly back and forth a lot. And uh, I, I told her that, uh, you know, you've got to meet the people, God's people in South Boston. So we're just real blessed to, to be able to have her. We're going to be uh, taking her to the airport in Roanoke uh, shortly after to get her back to New Hampshire. Uh, and we're just so thankful that the weather's kind of held up. I know we were supposed to get some snow, but, uh, but so we're thankful for that. But it is a blessing to be with you here once again. Before we open up the word together, let us go before the Lord one more time in prayer. Lord, we are so thankful for the opportunity to gather together and to worship you. And we are so thankful that one of the ways that you give us to worship you is by opening up your word. And Lord, as we take a look at this text this morning, I pray that the words I speak would not be my own, but rather they would be yours. And it would be your words that would cut deeply into our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I invite you to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to be looking at just a few verses, verses 35 through 38. Again, that is Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. I know in the adult Sunday school class, which I was blessing to take a part of, uh, you are going through the Sermon of the Mount. So this is just a little bit after that. Again, Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. Uh, But as you're turning your Bibles to that text, I want to share with you something that, quite frankly, I don't really like to admit a whole lot, but perhaps it is something that you might be able to relate with. Several years ago, I worked for the mutual fund company, Fidelity Investments. Maybe some of you have investments at uh, Fidelity or maybe a 401k, but I worked there for, uh, well, 12 years. And there was a, a young man who worked for me. I'm going to call him Tom, though that wasn't his real name. And he was a very, very sharp employee. I, I loved having him work for me. But he was a bit of a loner, and sometimes he struggled with depression. And it got so because of some company policies that we had that he became very discouraged about some things, and so he resigned, and it was was very kind of hard time for me to be able to accept his resignation, but but he resigned. And then it was just a, a couple of months afterwards, we got a call from his sister. And his sister wanted to know whether we had heard from Tom or not. Apparently, he had gone missing, and so we were a little concerned. And we called some of the area hospitals to see maybe there was an accident, but there was just no sign of him. A couple of days later, his sister called again, and it turned out that Tom had taken his life. His depression had overwhelmed him. And when I heard the news, i got to tell you, my heart stopped Because I realized that all of that time that I spent with Tom and all the conversations that we had, I never shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. The one thing that could have made a difference in his life. And I was reminded of the words by John Green Whittier. For all the sad words, tongue or pen, The saddest are these, it might 
have been. After that experience, I promised myself that I would never let somebody who God placed in such close proximity to me to ever slip through the cracks without sharing them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Perhaps there's someone like Tom in your life. Someone whose very life depends on him or her hearing the gospel message. Well, as we read through this text this morning, we are going to learn that Christ is calling His church to develop a passion for the lost. So let's read through this text. I'm going to read through it. It's only a few verses in its entirety, and then we'll unpack it verse by verse. But here's what Matthew records, starting again, Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. He says, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore... Pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Let me just say, if there's one takeaway that I would want you to walk away with, it's this. It's that Christ is calling his church to develop a passion for the lost. Christ is calling his church to develop a passion for the lost. But that raises the question, how in all of the business of our lives, as we're raising families and we have work and we have various different responsibilities, how do we develop a passion for the lost? Well, as we unpack this text, we're going to uncover four requirements for developing a passion for the lost. The first requirement is that we need to understand Christ's heart for the lost. And we're going to see that sort of in the introduction, verse 35, but more so in the beginning of verse 36. The second requirement is that we need to understand Christ's description of the lost. And that's described for us in the latter part of verse 36. The third requirement is that we need to understand the urgency of reaching the lost. And Jesus himself makes that so clear for us in verse 37. And then the last requirement is that we need to pray for workers to reach the lost. And that's the command that Jesus gives us in verse 38. Now, let me just say, if you're a note taker, and I've already noticed that some of you are are, are writing down notes and trying to get all four of those requirements, and you didn't catch all of those, I'm going to be going over them multiple times. So I promise you, you'll you'll have a chance to be able to do that. But the first requirement for developing a passion for the lost is understanding Christ's heart for the lost. Now, as we read verse 35, if it seemed like we found ourselves in the middle of a story, that's because we did. In fact, to be more literal, we found ourselves not quite a third of the way through the Gospel of Matthew. And so let me kind of catch you up. I know in the adult Sunday school you've been studying Matthew, but let me kind of catch you up with what's going on specifically in chapter 8 and chapter 9, because here Matthew really records the power of Jesus' ministry. 
And in this text, we learn that Jesus cleansed a leopard, how he healed a centurion's son. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. He calmed the sea. He cast demons into the swine. He healed the paralytic. He healed the woman. He raised the dead. He gave sight to the blind. And he gave speech to a man who was mute. And then to provide us just a summary of what's going on in chapters 8 and chapters 9, Matthew records this. He says, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. And so what we learn here is those examples that are given through us of Jesus' miracles in chapters 8 and 9, they were just a sampling of what Jesus was doing. But in fact, he was actually going to all the cities and all the towns there in Galilee and taking care of every physical need, but more important, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. But here's what I want you to note. It's Jesus who's the one that's teaching in the synagogues. It's Jesus who's the one that's performing the role of an evangelist by preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus is the one that is meeting all the physical needs and healing every sickness and disease. His disciples were there. They were watching. They were learning and they were observing their teacher, but they were not yet doing the work of the teacher. All of that changes in chapter 10, though. In fact, skip ahead, chapter 10, verse 1. Notice, notice what it says. It says, And when he, Jesus, had called his disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Now, now skip down to verse 5. Notice what it says. These twelve Jesus sent out. You see, something happened from chapter 9, verse 35, to chapter 10, which turned these disciples from being merely observers of the teacher to actually doing the work of the teacher. And that raises the question, well, what exactly happened? Well, chapter 9, verse 36, really begins to tell us because in that text, Jesus reveals his heart. For the loss. Notice what it says in verse 36. It says, But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them. But when he saw the multitudes, he was healing, healing every sickness and every disease, but he saw those multitudes and he was moved with compassion for them. What are these multitudes of people that Matthew is, is referencing here? Well, the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that there were some 200 villages and towns in Galilee, and historians have estimated that there, there may have been a population as, uh, roughly as large as even 300,000 people that were living in that area. And, and elsewhere in Matthew, we would find that these, these crowds, these multitudes of people, they would travel with Jesus as they were going from village to village and city to city. And so there were these multitudes of people. Have you ever thought about the multitudes of people around you? People you work with? People in your neighborhood? People that you communicate with on a regular basis? Have you ever really thought about them? It says Jesus saw the multitudes and he was what? He was moved with compassion for them. 
That word compassion is actually a very interesting word. It's an unusual word in the Greek. It's pronounced plaknizomai. And it is a word, the reason why I say it's unusual is we don't find that at all in classical Greek. In fact, we don't even see it in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The only time this specific word appears is in the Gospel, and it's always referencing Jesus. It's a reference to sort of an emotion that Jesus has. And so he saw those multitudes, and he was moved. The word literally means to have your innards or your intestines moved. It references that sick feeling or that heart-wrenching feeling you get when you hear of a loved one experiencing a great trauma or you find out a loved one's in grave danger. Maybe you've, you've experienced that before. There's, there's a loved one and, and you learn it's cancer. And you get that, that heart-wrenching feeling. You know, in our church in, in New Hampshire that Nancy and I served with, there was a seven-year-old girl. Her name was Lexi. She was diagnosed with Ewing sarcoma. It's a, it's, a, it's, it's a cancer that attacks the bones. And she went through radical surgery, chemotherapy. They, they actually replaced one of the, her bones in, in her leg with a, um, with a titanium rod and, and experimental treatments that the insurance company didn't cover. And so, you know, we were, as a church, we were raising money uh, for them. And, you know, for three and a half years, we, we prayed over her and, and we fasted over her. But then at 11 years old, she died. And it absolutely broke our hearts. Well, that heart-wrenching feeling that we experienced because of the death of that little girl, Lexi, that's the feeling that's described here. It's the same feeling that Jesus has for the lost but, you know, when I think of Jesus' compassion for the lost, I have to admit to you, I am haunted with the question, do I feel the same way for those who are headed towards eternal suffering as I do for those who are going through physical suffering right now? Do I have the same heart for the lost that Jesus has? Did my heart really break for my coworker Tom? before it was too late. Did it break in the same way it broke for Lexi? After all, you know what, little Lexi? She's face to face with the Savior. But unless a radical change takes place in many of the people that we work with, that we live near, that we communicate with even on a daily basis, the same can't be said for them. Why was it that Jesus' heart was moved with such compassion for the lost? Well, that brings us to the second requirement for developing a passion for the lost. So that first requirement is we need to understand Christ's heart for the lost. He had a compassion for them. His heart broke for them. But the second requirement is we need to understand Christ's description of the loss. Take a look with me at uh, the middle of verse 30, 36. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved compassion for them. Why? Because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. 
Now, let me kind of forewarn you, a, a quick reading of our English translations may give us the wrong impression because there's, there, there's some words here that don't necessarily translate that well in the English. And so we might look at this, and I happen to be reading in the New King James, and it references that they're faint and weary. And so we might look at that and say, okay, well, you know, they were, they were a little fainted, they, they, they were scattered, they, they needed some help, but no big deal. But a further study of this text reveals a much more desperate and dire circumstance that these multitudes were in as Jesus is looking out at them. You see, the word that is translated fainted in in my text, and in some of your texts it might be translated as distressed. That's actually probably a better translation. Uh, The word is the word skulo, and it's actually a very graphic word. It actually means to skin or to strip the flesh. Now, there's a metaphor here. Notice it says that they were like sheep having no shepherd. So there is a metaphor here of shepherding. And so it's like these people, they were so distressed, they were like sheep that were being ripped apart by wolves. That's the graphic word that's used here. And then the next word is, is scattered. Sometimes that is translated as dispirited. Again, that would probably, if you, if you have that word dispirited, that would probably be a better translation. The Greek word that is used there is, is ripto. And it means to be cast down as from a mortal wound. In fact, in the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, we find that very same word being used in Judges chapter 5, verse 30, and it's describing a man by the name of Sisera who lay dead from a mortal wound because somebody had driven a tent stake through his skull. Again, a very graphic word here. See, Jesus has a heart-wrenching compassion for the lost because he literally sees them as those who are mortally wounded. My friends, let us never forget the state of those who have not yet accepted the saving grace of Jesus Christ. When we consider the scores of people in our families, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, let us never forget that each one of those people has a soul, and it's a soul that either is destined for an eternity in heaven or an everlasting horror in hell. C.S. Lewis once wrote this. He said, there are no ordinary people You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are all mortal, and their life is to ours as that of a gnat. But it is immortals who we joke with, who we work with, who we marry, who we even snub and exploit. All will go to a place of immortal horror or everlasting splendor. And let me add this to that. How we choose to communicate with them Whether or not we choose to share the gospel with them, they make a difference in the light of eternity in their lives. We go on in verse 36. Jesus continues the description here. And he says they are as sheep having no shepherd. What was worse is before Jesus, they had no leadership that could lead them away from the path of destruction to the kingdom of heaven. There was no shepherd to protect them and to care for them. Oh, there were the Pharisees and the scribes, those who claimed to be their shepherds, but they were largely responsible for the multitude's confusion 
and helplessness. And let me say that Jesus later on in Matthew gives a very stern warning regarding them. As he says in Matthew chapter 23, verse 13, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. See, these false shepherds, they were actually keeping the multitudes from entering the kingdom of heaven with their false teachings and with their legalism. Unfortunately, there's no shortage of false teachers today. False shepherds who lead the multitudes who are helpless and distraught. There's a prevalent view in Roman Catholicism that says you can earn your way into God's favor by avoiding certain sins or performing certain good deeds. The multitudes are left believing that you can work your way to heaven. Among liberal churches, there is a prevailing view that a loving God would never condemn anyone to hell. And so the multitudes are left believing there is no need for a Savior. Even among evangelical churches, there's actually a, a view among some churches in which the doctrine of hell has actually come under fire. It's argued by some that there is no hell for those who reject Christ, that they just simply cease to exist. It's a false teaching that's called annihilationism. And as a result of that, the urgency to reach the lost has been undermined. And that brings me to the third requirement for developing a passion for the loss. The first requirement is we need to understand Christ's heart for the loss. The second requirement is we need to understand Christ's description of loss. And the third requirement is we need to understand the urgency of reaching the lost. Take a look at verse 37. Here it says, Then he, Jesus, said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Notice here that the metaphor was once shepherding, and now it's moved to harvesting. And commentators have differed in terms of what they believe Jesus really meant by the harvest. There are some who say that the harvest represents all of the loss. There are others who say that, that it represents those who are seeking after God. But we ought not to forget, however, that the Gospel of Matthew, the original audience of Matthew were the Jews. And the Jews had a very good understanding of the Old Testament. Many of them had memorized large portions of it. And for them, that word harvest would have been a bit of a trigger word because in the Old Testament, over and over again, that word harvest is connected with the concept of judgment. Let me give you a couple examples. Prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter 17, verse 11, in the day that you will make your plant to grow, and in the morning you will make the seed to flourish, but the harvest will be a heap of ruins in the day of grief and desperate sorrow. There's judgment being referenced there. Prophet Joel writes in Joel chapter 3, verses 12 through 13, Let the nations be awakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is right. Once again, judgment. And by the way, Matthew actually makes this connection of the harvest in a time of judgment later on in his own gospel. In fact, 
and the very familiar parable that we find in Matthew chapter 13, what's oftentimes referred to as the parable of the wheat and the, and the tares. The portraying of harvest is connected with this time of judgment. Many of you, no doubt, are, are very familiar with this particular parable. A man planted good seed, wheat, into his field. And as that wheat began to sprout, the servants of that man had noticed that an enemy must have come at night and planted tares or weeds among the wheat in order to, to keep them from fully growing. And so the servant said to the master, do you want us to, to pull up these tares or the weeds? And, and the master says, well, no, because if you do that, you're going to pull up some of the good wheat. So here's what he says. It's found in, in Matthew chapter 13, verse 30. The master says, let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat unto my barn. Again, judgment is, is referenced here. Now, I know it's not popular today to reference judgment. And it's certainly not popular today to talk about the doctrine of hell. But the mention here of the coming harvest it references the urgency of what we're doing. It references the urgency of what you're doing here in South Boston as you gather together as a church. That urgency was prophesied by, by Daniel in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. You know, earlier on when Jesus referenced hell in Matthew chapter 8, he referenced it as a, a place of utter darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Later on in Matthew chapter 13, he referenced hell as a fiery furnace. In fact, interestingly, Jesus mentions hell more than he mentions heaven in the New Testament. I wonder why that is. Let me suggest to you that perhaps it's because he didn't want these multitudes of people that he saw to experience hell. And that's why he went through such great lengths, even dying the excruciating death on the cross, so that they wouldn't have to experience hell. You see, this is why Jesus' heart broke for the lost. He knew the horror of the destiny. That's why he describes him as those who are mortally wounded. And let me just say, the reality of the coming harvest and, and its reference to that day of judgment, it points to the urgency of sharing the gospel message. It points to the urgency of what all of you are doing here at Faith Community Church as you share the gospel in, in, in South Boston and Halifax and, and Southern Virginia. See, when an emergency vehicle drives through the city, if you're driving through Halifax and you see that ambulance in your rearview mirror, the law demands that you pull over and stop. Why? Because someone's life may be in jeopardy. And so that emergency vehicle is given a great priority. Well, that's how it should be when it comes to eternal salvation. And the busyness of our lives, we need to recognize there's an extreme emergency Eternal lives are at stake. And every coworker, every neighbor, every person we do business with, every person that the Lord has placed in our path 
needs the gospel. And there's an urgency to reaching them. And then notice what Jesus says, though, at the end of verse 37, he observes, but the laborers are few. Despite the dire urgency, despite the seriousness of what is at stake, Jesus says, but the laborers are few. And let me say, the laborers, those who are willing to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, they are few today as well. And let me suggest to you, I think part of the problem is, is we've gotten to the idea that, you know, well, I haven't been given the gift of evangelism. You know, God gives us different gifts, and that's, that's very true. And some people, it's biblical, some people, he gives the gift of evangelism. So we think, well, it's their job to share the gospel. Maybe it was someone else's job to reach my coworker, Tom. Let me make something very clear. Our gifts, they may determine how we spread the gospel, but they do not determine the need of our individual involvement in sharing the gospel. And we need to recognize the power of the gospel, it's not in us anyways. It's not in the messenger. The power of the gospel is in the message itself. Hudson Taylor, who was the director of China Inland Missions, many of you may be familiar with him, the great missionary to China. And uh, he was gathering together a group of men and women to go with him to China to, to, to share the gospel. And among those who came forward was an amputee, a person with one leg. And when he came forward, Taylor had said to this man, you know, we're going to be going into the wilderness of China. Don't you think having one leg is going to be a burden to you? And his response is, no doubt, it's going to be very difficult. But there are not enough people with two legs who have stepped forward, and so I must because of the urgency of reaching China for Christ. There's an urgency to what we're doing here. There's an urgency to what you're doing at Faith Community Church in this area. There's an urgency of reaching the people around us. Four requirements for developing a passion for the lost. First requirement is we need to understand Christ's heart for the lost. Second requirement is we need to understand Christ's depiction, description of the lost. Third requirement is we need to understand the urgency of reaching the loss. And the fourth requirement is we need to pray for workers to reach the loss. Notice what Jesus says in verse 38. Here's the command. He says, therefore, because of this, because of the urgency, because my heart breaks for these people, because of the dire need, therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus here highlights the importance of immersing our evangelistic efforts in prayer. And whether that might be a church-wide ministry that you are all taking a part of together, or, or whether that might be just you individually going across the street and sharing the gospel, that needs to be immersed in prayer. I was reading, this is actually a number of years ago, but it appeared in Our Daily Bread, it was a story of five young college students in the late 1800s, and they were spending a hot July summer in London. And they wanted to hear the famed C.H. Spurgeon preach the Sunday evening, and he was having an evangelistic service, so they decided to go to that church. And they were met by the church door by a, by a, a stranger. 
And he greeted the college students by saying, gentlemen, let me show you around. Would you like to see the heating plant, meaning the furnace of our church? And the college students were a little bit confused. It's the middle of July. The last thing they wanted to see or were interested in was the furnace of this church. But they did not want to offend the stranger, and so they, they agreed. And so they walked down to the basement of that church, and the man carefully opened up an old rusty door, and he said, look in, because here's the heating plant of our church. And those college students looked in, and there were 700 people on their knees in prayer. They were praying for the evangelistic service that was about to occur. And then the stranger introduced himself. He said, my name, by the way, is Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was a man who recognized the importance of immersing our ministry in prayer. It's interesting, though, here, because Jesus didn't command, in this case, his disciples to pray for the lost. Rather, he commanded them to pray for workers to reach the lost. Now, let me make it very clear. We ought to be praying for the lost. Paul, in fact, commands us to do that very thing in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. But nevertheless, it's interesting here because Jesus places the priority on praying for workers to reach the lost. I wonder why that's the case. Let me suggest to you, maybe there is a lesson here. You see, when you fervently pray for something, you cannot help but get a heart for that in which you are praying for. You want a passion for the loss? You pray for workers to reach the loss. And when you get a heart for that, you better be prepared to be one of those workers that you are praying for to reach the loss. And that's exactly what happened here. Because the very disciples that Jesus commanded pray for workers to reach the loss, they are the very disciples that in the very next chapter become those workers who go out and share the gospel of the kingdom. Four requirements for developing a passion for the loss. First requirement is we need to understand Christ's heart for the lost. Do we really understand Jesus' heart for the lost? Do our hearts break? Do our intestines move in the same way that it does for Jesus? Second requirement is we need to understand Christ's description for the lost. Have we really internalized what Jesus was saying here? Do we really see those around us as those who are headed for a place of eternal splendor or everlasting horror, do, you re- do we really see those around us that have not yet placed their trust in Christ alone as those who are mortally wounded? Third requirement is we need to understand the urgency of reaching the loss. Do we recognize the urgency of our work? Do we recognize that every coworker that we work with, every neighbor that we walk by, every person that we come across with has a soul and is a soul that is destined for an eternal splendor or an everlasting horror? Fourth, we need to pray. The work of the Lord requires the presence of the Lord, and we enter into the presence of the Lord through prayer. We need God's presence. And fortunately, after giving us the Great Commission, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, Jesus says this, he says, Lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Look, here's the application here. 
God has placed certain people in your lives. He's placed certain people in your close proximity, co-workers, family members, neighbors, that waitress or waiter that's at the favorite restaurant that you go to, the cashier at your favorite supermarket, that person that's helping you at Walmart, whatever it is, God has placed those people in your proximity. And all of them need the one thing that you have. They need the Savior. And whether you realize it or not, the same God who has the power to raise the dead has given you the power and the voice to reach them. And how you choose to interact with them, whether or not you choose to share the gospel with them, may make a difference in their lives in the light of eternity. Thus far as I've been speaking, I've really been addressing those of you who've already placed your trust in Jesus Christ. This is the command that has been given to us that we would share the gospel with those that God has placed in our proximity. But I don't know all of you, and, and maybe there's one or two people here that have not yet placed your trust in, in Jesus. And if that's the case, I want to speak to you right now because it would be a little bit hypocritical for me to encourage you to share the gospel without mentioning the gospel itself. You know, the Bible re references a perfection, a problem, and a promise. The perfection is God. The Bible ma makes it very clear God is a perfectly holy, righteous, and just God. In fact, in the Old Testament, in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13, it references that he's so holy, he cannot even, not only can he not sin, but he can't have anything to do with sin. He cannot even look at sin. And that actually brings us to our problem. Now, the problem has nothing to do with who God is, but it does have everything to do with who we are. The Bible makes it very clear. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, that all of us have sinned. That word sin simply means we've missed the mark. In our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds, in our pride, in our selfishness, in our jealousy, we've missed the mark of who God is. And because God is perfectly holy, righteous, and just, and we're not, we've missed the mark, we are naturally separated from Him. That separation is spelled out for us even more clearly in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, where it says the wages, meaning here's the result of our sin. The result of our sin is death. And when he's talking about death there, Paul's not talking about a physical death. He's talking about an eternal separation from God in a place called hell. And you say, well, why would God do that? God's perfectly righteous and just, and we're not. So we're naturally separated from him. But Romans chapter 6, verse 23 doesn't end there, does it? There's a really important conjunction. I love it when we see this little word in the New Testament text. It's the word but. You know, but God. Goes on to say, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. God loves you so much and he loves me so much that he gave his only son to die on the cross for us. He died that we might live. He took our place. And it has been given to us. It is offered up to us as a gift, this gift. But like any other gift, you need to receive it. You say, well, how do I receive the gift? Well, probably the most well-known verse in all of scriptures is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, wait for it, believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That word belief, it means to trust. 
The reference there is whoever trusts in Jesus Christ and who He is, that He is the God of creation, the One who proved Himself by rising from the dead. And what He did on that cross in Calvary, that that was enough to save us from our sins. Whosoever believes will have eternal life, will receive the gift. If you're here this morning and you've not yet placed your trust in Jesus Christ, let me say, don't wait. No one knows in this world what even the next minute might bring. The time for decision is now. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for who you are. We're thankful for the love that you have for us. We're thankful that you loved us so much that you gave your only son to die on that cross for us, that we might have a relationship for eternity with you, that we might have everlasting life. Lord, I pray that if there's just one here today who's not yet placed their trust in Jesus, I pray that today would be their day of salvation. Maybe you're here in this audience and you're saying, well, actually, that, that's me. You know, I've been coming to church for a while, but I've never really made that decision to place my trust in Jesus Christ. If that's you, let me encourage you to follow me in this prayer. Now, let me make it very clear. A prayer does not save you. It's placing your trust in Jesus Christ that saves you. But prayer is a way of, of, of talking to your Heavenly Father about that trust that you have. Lord, I recognize that I, I, I'm a sinner. I've fallen short of who you are in my thoughts, my words, my jealousy, my pride. I've fallen short of who you are. But I'm so thankful for what you have done for me. I'm thankful for who you are. That you are the God of creation. That you are the one true God and you prove that by rising from the dead. I'm thankful for what you did for me on that day in Calvary, that you died on the cross, that I might live. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about Faith Community Church, you can find us online at fccsobo.org or on our Facebook page by searching Faith Community Church. As always, God loves you, we love you, and we hope you have a wonderful week.